Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today, I am joined by Dr. Raymond Matthews. Uh, Ray is a sleep and fatigue researcher at the University of South Australia Behaviour Brain Body Research Centre. Uh, Ray's research interest is in sleep and fatigue, and he has a background in military, which he'll talk about as well, and his podcast, Neurocognitive Performance Individuals, as well as Team Environments, and uh, Interactions with Technology. And Ray goes into detail about some of these devices as well, and, and how we can sort of track our own sleep. Now, Raymond, although he is a bit of a crazy guy on the podcast, he is a very smart guy too and was awarded Tony Winfield PhD Prize for the best PhD thesis. Uh, Ray undertook simulation-based research at the Apple Institute for Behavioral Science at Central Queensland University, followed by a postdoctoral research fellowship in the Karolinski Institute in Sweden. He's now back in Australia at the University of South Australia, where he is working as a research fellow uh, at University of South Australia, as we said at the beginning of the intro. Um, so Ray's real focus is around the interactions of sleep, circadian systems, effect of sleep loss and shift work, and more importantly, the ways we can protect ourselves against these and sort of minimize these fatigue rate errors and what countermeasures we can put in place. He's also going to talk briefly at the end of the podcast about countermeasures that he's investigating and some of the more novel ones as well. As always, you can um, follow us on Twitter at Sleep for Perform. You can email me at iandunican at sleepforperformance.com.au and sleepforperformance.com.au website has got all of this information at any time. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode as Ray has provided some additional information for this episode. Also as well, if you are enjoying the episode, please share it on social media. And more importantly, if you have the time and you feel like it's valuable, please go to iTunes and give us um, a review uh, and a rating. That would really help in terms of bumping us up to get the podcast out to everybody. Um, Please remember this podcast is free to everybody and um, the production of it, um, sort of the input is all done by people's free time. It's a, it's a non-for-profit platform there to promote sleep, science and education and performance. So please, if you could help us share this message and spread it out, we really appreciate it. Okay, into the episode. Exercise and diet are well established in society as two pillars for optimizing our health. However, both are supported by a foundation that is often forgotten, yet even more integral to our health, namely sleep. The Sleep Recovery Specialist course is an innovative online education experience that provides an in-depth knowledge base, important sleep assessment tools, and a wide range of effective strategies for supporting clients to improve their sleep habits and behaviors. Improve your sense of happiness and well-being, daily energy and alertness, recovery from physical training, reduce risk of obesity and diabetes, and reduce your appetite and sweet cravings. Achieve all of this and more. For further information and to enroll online, please visit www.nordicfitnesseducationblog.com. Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today I am talking to my enemy, Raymond Matthews, my sworn enemy from the other side of the, of the country. Raymond, was, was that a good way to introduce you? Well, I mean, I thought we were good friends, but there we go. We're enemies. Well, we are now, I suppose, as soon as I put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> Raymond is one of the, the great guys I like to annoy on Facebook with just uh, fishing comments. Uh, I think the word is, what did the young people call it? A troll. I like, to troll, yeah. I like to troll Raymond on Facebook, yeah. so yeah. Well, not just on Facebook, any meeting, I think. <laughs> <laughs> In general life. Yeah, yeah. So... 
Although uh, I do troll Raymond, I do respect his work and I've seen him present many times. And although he is probably twice as mental as I am, uh, Raymond does some great work um, in the sleep science, chronobiology, shift work community. Um, I've been chasing on Raymond um, for a few years because Raymond was in Australia. The last time I saw Raymond was sitting beside Raymond with her under the stars of Ayers Rock of a romantic outside dinner was the last time I saw Raymond um, face to face. And then he went off to Sweden, he ran away, and now he's come home to Australia. Yeah. So, and we finally managed to nail Raymond down to do this podcast via Zoom today. So you're back home, Raymond. Yes, back to sleepy Adelaide. Uh, back into doing conventional research, which is quite nice. I'm enjoying, enjoying all the stuff that I've got going on here. So for Raymond, for the guys who don't know you, uh, where did you grow up and how did you get into the area of sleep science? So I grew up in South Australia, in country South Australia, and um, originally I didn't consider sleep science at all. I went off to university and studied astrophysics, and then I joined the Navy and uh, was uh, an observer in the Navy for a little while. Uh, and then I was in the process of actually transferring to the Air Force, and I got out of the Navy for a bit, and I needed to do something to fill time before I rejoined the Air Force. So I took up some university studies and fell into psychology. Um, and it was over that period that uh, performance, sleep, fatigue type psychology research was, uh, re- uh, became Im- immediately relevant to me after having the background in military aviation. So, so you yeah, said I you just kind of fell into it, really. Fell into it, yeah. Like, like, like a lot of people. I don't think people go to school and go, wow, someday I want to be a sleep scientist. Um, it never really seems to be on people's radar. Everybody kind of falls into a accent. But you said there, Raymond, you did um, astrophysics. Did you do an undergraduate degree in astrophysics? I started one. I didn't end up finishing it. it, it <laughs> <ended> up... <laughs> yeah, so that, I mean, that was quite a journey, starting a degree in astrophysics and actually graduating in psychology and physiology. A bit of a... Ah. Quite a difference. The, the, was there any sort of shared um, learnings, commonality between those two kind of different disciplines in the scientific area? Well, from the core prospect that it, it is all science, and so it's all scientific method, and we all come at the problems with the same types of toolboxes of, of reasoning skills and that sort of thing. Um, and so I think for me it was quite an advantage coming up from into psychology from a more hard discipline science rather than yeah. where some people join is a little bit more soft science and, and they don't consider psychology in the, same, in the same way that like a physicist or a chemist or, or someone else would. Yeah, sure. And what made you uh, join the Navy? Was that part of a, of a kind of a, a program from university into the Navy or did you go in as a, um, you know, you wanted to be like Tom Cruise? <laughs> no, no. I, I think I was always destined to end up in the military at some point. I had been a cadet for a, a number of years. Um, I had my pilot's license before I had um, my driving license, my full driving license. <laughs> uh, so I was, I was always pretty keen. Uh, I spent a lot of time down at the RAF base. Uh, in South Australia, down at Edinburgh, just doing whatever I could at the time. And uh, so, yeah, I always thought I was going to end up there. And, and I actually thought I was going to end up as a pilot in the Air Force. And it was looking that way. Um, and then the Navy jumped up and said, oh, we've got lots of openings here. Why don't you come do something with us? And I was like, oh, well, different uniform. Can't be that bad. <laughs> so I ended up in the Navy. And so wh- why, did you, why did you leave the Navy if you were so kind of uh, I right, yeah. focused, so, so focused on it? Why did you jump out? 
Yeah, I, I never really intended to leave the military. I was looking at transferring over from the Navy to the Air Force because after I did my flight training, uh, navigation training down at East Sail, the RAF base there, I kind of realized I fitted in the Air Force a little bit better. And um, and there was the exact same positions over with the Orions at the time that I was doing. So I was looking at transferring. And uh, at the time, the Navy was truly trying to hold on to you. Know, it just young officers that have just been qualified sort of thing. Um, it was going to be far easier uh, politically to leave and rejoin than, than to try and get a transfer. It was just the state of the military at the time though. Yeah. Yeah. And so you never went back then. You obviously, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you never, you never fulfilled that destiny. You yeah, went off yeah. then and started a PhD. Yeah. So I remember I rocked up um, at one of the recruiting officers to fill out all the paperwork. And um, an admin had said to me, uh, what date do you want to set is your joining date? And I thought, oh, I can have a couple of months off. And then she said, you can actually have off up to five years and it'll still count as a transfer. <laughs> I oh, was really? like, well, maybe I'll take a year off. I uh, just come back from deployments and I was all cashed up and I was young. And I'd come back from uh, intensive trainings back to back pretty much throughout my military career so i was looking forward to having some time off and um then i just had to i i came back home moving with my parents as you do at that age and um i had to find something that i was doing for that year to get basically get my parents off my back but i wasn't just sitting on my ass playing computer games or something so um i thought university that's pretty easy let's just go do something easy at university and psychology seemed like a bit of a bludge at the time <laughs> And so just, just to clarify for our listeners, you were a naval officer. Yes. So Don't hold have, that against me. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just, it just all makes sense that a naval officer wants to go home and play games and then go and do one of the easier courses at university. I'm just drawing the lines here. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so for all those hardworking soldiers and NCOs out there, this is the epitome of an officer in all uh, military institutions around the world. Um, I don't think that's a secret. I think we all know that, right? <laughs> I, I have to do that, Raymond. I was an NCO, so I have to. I have to. You can only. I can. I have to punch up. Um, <laughs> so, Ray, you went and did your PhD thesis. Can you tell us about where you did that thesis um, and sort of what was the focus or the aims of that PhD work? Yeah, so I did my PhD studies at the Centre for Sleep Research, which is at University of South Australia. Um, that was under uh, Drew Dawson um, and a bunch of other researchers, quite well known in the field. And I was running what's known as a forced asynchrony protocol. Basically, what we were doing was we were desynchronizing or destabilizing um, the, uh, the sleep-wake behavior cycles that we have and our internal clocks that run those cycles um, to sort of tease out how those systems interact in order to bring out changes in performance and, and alertness. So when you said desynchronizing these clocks, what would be an example of that you could give to people who may not be familiar with that type of work? Yeah, so normally um, if you stay up at night, uh, if you're a shift worker or if you're just partying all night, you, sort of have, you can notice that, that dip in alertness that you'll get sort of from three to four, five, six in the morning where you just feel pretty crappy. And that, that's the signal from your internal system telling you that that's a drive to sleep, that's maximizing sleep time. And so that's coming from within your body. Um, so, so that's part of the internal system. And then externally you have your behavior. So uh, when you're going to bed, when you're waking up, when you're eating, when all the systems that you're, uh, that you're doing throughout the day, that you're cycling through the day. So if we're desynchronizing that system, then instead of sleeping at night, 
we might be sleeping at the day or sleeping in the afternoon or sleeping at different times of the day. And, um, and that means that that internal system is then not driving your behavior like it normally would. So an easy example for this is jet lag, right? So you go yeah. to seas and your internal clock is no longer set to your behavioral rhythms because you're trying to get up and sleep at different times. So those two systems are desynchronized. Are you still there, Ray? Yeah, I'm here. Yep. Oh, I thought you, I thought you fell asleep there. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that sinking feeling. So, for example, Ray, then you say about people going overseas. Uh, if somebody went, let's say, from you know, Adelaide to Las Vegas, they're completely desynchronized, plus the behavior of staying up and gambling, eating at odd times, not exposure to sunlight. This would be an example of where people would be you know, completely desynchronized internally and externally, using your terminology. Uh, yeah, definitely. And then uh, through uh, sync other things that will synchronize the system, things like bright light, for example, is a good one. Yeah. Um, so the simple daylight will then resynchronize those systems, sort of reset the clock and say, okay, this is the daytime, this is the nighttime, this is where my, my internal system needs to be to get things back into check again. So what were you trying to find out, Ray, with that research? So, like, what was your goal? Were you trying to force these desynchronizations and see how people could adapt back out, to, out, out of them? Were you trying to see if people could you know, self-regulate? Like, what was the overall aim of, the, of this work? Okay. So the overall aim is that we, we know that, for example, sleep loss, that affects your performance. And we know that uh, being awake for a long time, that affects your performance. And we know that there's the time of day issues. So as I said, like three to five o'clock in the morning, you're not gonna be performing too well. Um, and then during the day, you'll be performing better than during the night. And so we have these multiple systems. And usually what happens, if you're trying to study one of them, you're getting influences of the others, other ones in, in mix. So by destabilizing the whole system, we, we came up with a matrix where we could study, okay, let's hold one of these things constant and then manipulate the other ones. So it's basically about just collecting a whole heap of data with lots of varied amounts of sleep and varied amounts of wake and different times of the day and lots of different combinations to start teasing out how those processes interact um, in, in, and from that then you can start looking at modeling how you can model performance but it also gives you a really good understanding of what is influencing what are the big influences of performance and so and so what, what was the biggest influence of, of performance? If we talk about people, like a lot of people listen to this show under shift workers, for example, and they'll oscillate between days and nights, what would be the biggest impact there to their performance in terms of these um, different areas you were looking at? The way I like to think about it, and the easiest way to think about it, is think about it as three inputs. So the amount of sleep you're getting, how long yep. you're awake, and what time of the day is that you're doing things. And there's going to be good and bad factors uh, spectrums for those. So for example, lots of sleep is good, losing sleep is bad, being awake for a short amount of time, like maybe six or 10 hours is good, anything more than 16, 18 hours is bad. And then for time of day, um, sort of daytime, morning is good. So anything through the afternoon is particularly good, around sort of four o'clock in the afternoon can be good time of the day to do things, bad time of the day would be four o'clock in the morning. So you've got these three inputs and you've got good and bad on those spectrum. And the way that it looks, with the dynamics between our system and, and our, the way our body regulates it, you can probably hold two of those, or you can control one of those being bad, let me just say. So for example, you can work at three o'clock in the morning if you're getting enough sleep and you haven't been awake too long. Yeah. Um, you can work after being awake for you know, 24 hours or something, 
if you're getting enough sleep and it's not a bad time of the day. Um, and you can work after being awake for a long time, as, as I said. So there seems to be a little bit of elasticity in our systems that we, that we can manage those sorts of things. Now, this is kind of really important because um, years ago, uh, Drew Dawson, I've got the paper here, actually. I'll tell you the year that it was on. But he had a quite famous nature paper, which was reporting uh, 17 hours of prior wake. Well, that was in 1997, that paper. I was just actually putting a slide together 20 minutes ago on this. Ah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, uh, I like to talk about that one because that's like one of the most misquoted papers in our field now because um, so he, he aligned um, 17 hours of prior wake was about the same about as being 0.05 drunk, which everyone kind of set up and sort of understood that. But from this research that I did during my PhD, you can sort of see that, well, you can get to about 0.05 drunk far with far less prior wake at different times of the day and also losing sleep then changes that dynamic as well so let me give you an example if you've only been awake for four and a half hours at midnight and you've only been getting four hours of sleep then that's the same that's a that's about performance at 0.05 drunk conversely you could be awake for 14 and a half hours at four o'clock in the morning but if you're getting eight hours of sleep then that's about that's the same as being 0.05 drunk so i've got some nice graphs that i might get you to put up on one of your pages that you can sort of track how these change over those three dimensions and i guess the take-home message for me is um while the mathematics that drives this is quite complicated the system's actually really straightforward and all that you really have to do is try and plan in advance and say okay uh, we'll be driving home at six o'clock in the morning after a night shift. I need to make sure that I've got enough sleep. And if I can't do that, then I need to make some arrangements that I don't do it. So like we take alcohol and we don't happen to just find ourselves out late at night drunk with no way to get home. We plan ahead and say, well, I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna drink tonight. I'm probably not gonna be in a state to drive home. So I'm gonna plan not to. And I think if we do the same thing with fatigue, then we can keep ourselves safe quite easily rather than just trying to make judgment calls at the time. Oh, am I tired? Yes. No, I feel fine. Oh, I'm going to drive. And that might, might not be safe. That's a really interesting way of um, equating it to something else that we're very familiar with. And over time, you know, sort of 50 years ago, people would drive home with a few drinks and self-assess and go, I'm okay. But now, you know, because of, I suppose, the external regulatory framework around that and the uh, the impact of people's, I suppose, losing their license, fines, or potentially, you know, killing somebody. Those sort of, um, the risks are well known, well communicated, and people will not, well, people do still take the chance, but obviously a lot less than, than previously. So it's an interesting way that you equate fatigue and decision-making around that as well, because you're dead right, Ray. We see this, obviously, through uh, papers that we look at. Uh, I've, you've seen it in your work. I've seen it with athletes. And more importantly, when I go out and consult with companies in mining, oil and gas, transportation, aviation, same thing as well. You know, people have this kind of idea. Well, you know, I'm not an idiot. I know if I'm tired or not. But when you, when you say they're not an idiot, yeah. you know, nine times out of ten, either the modeling, you know, using biomathematical modeling, which has got some similarities with your work, will show that they're in this state of, you know, extreme fatigue, if you want to use that word. And also, if you're using uh, actigraphy, 
tracking the sleep and wake patterns of those people over time, you can see that they are in a state of, you know, chronic sleep deprivation. Absolutely. Um, and then to your point is like, you know, coming off night shift, for example, the time of day, driving home, you overlap all of those factors and it's just, it's just risk upon risk upon risk and it builds oh, absolutely. up. Yeah. And it's very predictable and it's very easy to see these things once you understand the mechanisms that you're playing with. Um, and I, I like the analogy to alcohol because it's also quite, I mean, you have a lot of other analogies, like for example, when the alcohol laws were first coming out, you would have a truck driver and they might say, oh, I understand that someone else can't drink six beers and then drive, but I can, because I do that and I can do that. And over time, that, that person has then come to understand, okay, well, that's now illegal. I can't do that, even though I think I can. And I think we're in the same place with fatigue, with shift workers, or there'll be some that will say, oh, I understand that this person or other people can't be awake for 24 hours at six o'clock in the morning and then drive a car. But I feel that I can. And, and we need to say, no, no, you actually can't. You're actually impaired. You don't know that you're impaired, but, but you're not in a good state. And just because you've done it before and you haven't crashed the car doesn't mean that it's a safe thing to do. Um, and um, so getting that, that message across is really important. Um, and then helping people to track their own performance uh, and then they'll realize that they're impaired is really important because the one thing that declines with your own performance and abilities is your ability to rate your own performance. So yeah. people just don't realize how badly impaired they are. And I, I, I know this from personal perspective and staying up all night doing studies and things. I'll at, at times I'll watch someone do, for example, a half an hour or 40 minute driving simulator task and they'll crash the simulator. And then I'll be like, Oh, okay, that's in my shift. I'll drive home. And then I go, Hey, on a sec. I'm as tired as that person. Cause they've gotten about as much sleep as I have. Should I be driving home? And you have to really stop yourself and think about it when you're in yeah. bed like that and, uh, and force yourself to make other choices, which, which is the hard thing to do when you're already impaired. Like if you're already impaired, you don't want to add more issues to trying to get home. You're like, oh, I'm already tired. I just want to get home. I don't want to have to call a taxi. I don't want to have to sleep where I am. I, you know, so it really does take prior planning to get yourself out of those situations. Yeah, I think that's a really important point, like for people, particularly those people who work in shift work, you know, um, and then have to commute long distances. And there's this kind of misnomer, I think, with shift work. Well, I'm in a metropolitan area. I'm not in a remote environment, so that's okay. I'll be home within 30 minutes. But you've still worked a 12-hour shift, and you might be in a control room or like an air traffic controller, as an example. But you're still you know, being awake at those times. And although you might be commuting in a high-risk environment, such as, you know, a remote operation like a mine site or you know, having to drive a significant long distance, even that small commute of 15 to 20 minutes, um, you know, you're still going to be at risk, although your time oh, on that task is obviously less than driving an hour, but you still may be at risk. And I think this is, a, is an important factor about planning in around what you're going to do. It's interesting when you talk about the sleep restrictions studies, Ray, because you'll be obviously familiar with Hans van Dongen's work. Um, he's a guy who actually finished uh, physics, I think, at university. Um, <laughs> um, and like his work around modeling and, and stuff but he's got he's got a great paper from 2003 that was published in sleep that shows these performance lapses and it's comparing people to get no hours of sleep a night four hours eight hours six hours yeah, um, yeah. and showing the performance lapses and it's really evident from that graph over the number of days of sleep restriction you know because people will often go well you know i'm not going to get no sleep that might happen every now and then but yeah. I get six hours and I get by okay. But when you look at this six hours versus eight hours of sleep, the difference between the performance lapses or the errors that people make, you know, it's staggering. So 
and this is another thing coming back to your point about self-assessment people get really people are really bad at assessing their own sleep it's one of the worst sleep measures and in other work we found with shift workers and athletes you know the sleep duration is actually is more akin to time in bed so people will go yeah i got eight or nine hours last night yeah maybe to spend eight or nine hours in bed but they might have only got six hours of sleep so we find out that that's off by anywhere from between 10 and 20 percent each night because uh, people are, are really you know piss poor uh, <laughs> monitoring yeah. their own sleep yeah no? yeah and so and we also use those same sort of metrics i think eight six and four hours of sleep but nice benchmarks to sort of uh look at sleep deprivation because you kind of can fit quite closely into one of those one of those categories um and, and just to give you a heads up for example like so just say the difference between getting eight hours of sleep a night or six hours sleep a night is um it, it equates to well if you're talking about performance at four o'clock in the morning it's about seven hours of prior wake difference so what that means is um is um uh, i could be awake for about 14 hours after having eight hours of sleep at four o'clock in the morning. And that is the equivalent of being awake for about five hours at four o'clock in the morning with six hours of sleep. So the curves are actually quite large differences between them. And when you're trying to like, so basically when you sleep, you're buying yourself time of wake. The amount of time that, that you're buying is far less when you're only dropping your sleep by about two or four hours. So, yeah, so the economy is just telling you, oh, my God, I need to be aiming at eight hours of sleep every night. And then if I'm not, then that's having an a, a influence on, on my performance at critical times. So after, you know, 20 hours awake or at four o'clock in the morning, that's when it's really going to matter. Yeah, but also Ray, as well, it's not just the one night of sleep, it's the sustain. So for people who oh, are doing yeah, long-term yeah. shift work as well, who might do like a week of nights or, you know, um, you know, week of days and then switch on to a week of nights and have a week off, for example, um, it's the also the long term the long term sleep deprivation. So have you have you looked at that? Um, or or if yeah, not, what's your yeah. thoughts on that? Oh, that's definitely a, a really big issue. This idea of the chronic we call it chronic sleep loss, opposed to the acute the one over a couple of nights stuff. And so I, I did some uh, research uh, with some collaborators on um, oil rig workers, um, and the big thing there was we were just seeing after the two weeks that they were offshore doing their their um, um, shifts. Uh, you could just see the fatigue. So we, we see ratings of sleepiness just slowly climb over the shift. Um, and you start going, oh my God, if they want to extend the time that they're offshore by like another half a week, they're putting themselves into a really dangerous zone there. Um, I think shift work and this chronic fatigue, is, uh, chronic sleep debt that you end up building is something that you should only be doing for rel relatively short periods of time. You, you really need to have the time when you recover and I think we actually all do that in life because typically people nowadays will be sleeping about six or seven hours a night so you won't be quite getting the optimum full of sleep um, but then what they also do is they end up sleeping in on the weekend so they recover their debt on the weekend after every week and then they're back to sort of a baseline by Monday feeling a bit shit <laughs> having to recover and then they go through the weekend building up a sleep debt. Have you, you seen uh, so I was going to say, just on that point, Ray, have you seen a recent study from Kenner Wright in Colorado about this? Yes, yes. Mm. It's very interesting. We did an audio abstract on it recently for the, for the podcast, but basically people might make up that sleep over one week, but then when they keep doing it multiple weeks in a row, they're, they're, they're never getting back to that kind of uh, return into that baseline of reducing that sleep debt. And then what happens is actually it affects leptin and ghrelin. It affects their weight. People generally gain weight. And some people actually got pre-diabetic within two to three weeks. 
Yeah, yeah, and that's exactly the point. And I think anyone that's, for example, had kids and you've gone through that period of having uh, having young babies and just being chronically sleep deprived, the, the other thing that changes is your your baseline for what normal performance, not for normal, you know, everyday alertness changes. So you you'll start off with a lower baseline of saying, oh no, I've got my five hours, I've got my four hours, I feel great. When actual fact, relative to the day before, you feel better, but when you were getting eight hours of sleep, you felt way better than that again. So you just kind of hit a new normal equilibrium and your body then change, your body physiology then changes to adapt to that. And, and there's consequences to doing that, which is, which is what his work is talking about. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's very interesting. I think it's very relevant to anybody out there. It's relevant to athletes. It's relevant to shift workers. It's relevant to people with new with newborn kids. It's relevant to people traveling to understand these processes that are happening within your body. And also, like you said about like these internal clocks, like they're kind of fixed or they, we don't we can't really control them too much. But then we have these external things as well. So it's much about our behavior, about what we do during the day and behavior at nighttime, in terms of sleep hygiene and so on, um, and understanding then apart from those during the day there's these different periods like you said three to six o'clock in the morning is going to be um high sleepiness high risk if you're at work but then you know throughout the day we see this with athletes maybe around exercise stuff um you know at the morning between nine and twelve is better for kind of cognitive performance we see in the evening between four and seven is very good for physical performance but then we also see this um forbidden zone or wake maintenance zone um, which is probably a hang-up from getting hunted by saber two tigers where it's extremely hard for us to fall asleep between six yeah. and nine in the evening. Yeah, um, I mean, So it's overlaying all those yeah, as well. Yeah. And I think that, that weight maintenance zone plays a critical role with us to be able to live uh, on a 24-hour world, right? Um, without that weight maintenance zone, we'd be falling asleep way too early. We wouldn't push out to a 16-hour wake period. We'd be falling asleep after about maybe 10, 12 hours. We'd have a 10, 12-hour day, then we'd fall asleep. Then we'd only probably only sleep for about six hours without that morning zone, which keeps us asleep. And so we wouldn't be able to live on a 24-hour uh, day-night cycle without those influences. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the work you were doing in oil and gas, that wasn't with Vanessa, was it? And, um, yes, it was, yes. Yeah. Okay, that's interesting because I'm trying to get Vanessa on the podcast as well. Um, <laughs> she's, she's in the queue as well, trying to organize a time with her. And also, I was just actually reading two of her papers this morning at about half past eight. It's now half past nine because I'm putting together a presentation for the oil and gas industry next week. And yeah, some really interesting work there um, yeah, on her research. So hopefully we'll have her on as a guest in the future. Yeah, um, it was really interesting, right? She was in the lab that I was at at the time, which was over at uh, Central Queensland University. And um, we were just talking about our research and, and she had my thesis actually on her desk. I was like, oh, that's my thesis, there we go. And she was flicking through it and then she showed me some data and I said, you know what? And I just picked up two pieces of paper with her data and my data and I put them on top of each other, held them up to the light and I said, you know, these tr are tracking exactly the same. Um, and that was just one of those moments where you're like, okay, so we've done all this field, re uh, sorry, laboratory research, all this really complicated type stuff. And then you've gone out into the field and you've collected some data and it's tracking the exact same trends with how long, you know, sleep mm -hmm. times and wait times and times of day. Uh, and so that was just a, one of those perfect moments where you're like, okay, the science is really uh, stacking up here. And we, we do understand um, how these processes are working. Yeah, and look, not preempting uh, Vanessa's uh, interview on the podcast, but I will. You know, her, some of her data is really interesting. I'll be put into a table this morning. She looked at people offshore um, before they went offshore to a platform, whilst they were offshore, and then when they came back. And it's very interesting because 
their sleep duration, you know, was seven hours when they're at home, six yeah. and a half hours while they were offshore, and then a little over seven hours when they came back. And that's only for day shift workers only she was looking at. So that's not yeah. including those night shift workers. And those day shift workers were working seven to seven. So kind of fall into good kind of chronobiology kind of principles for working shift worker extended day shifts. But yeah. what's interesting is what you're talking about, Ray, is once they start doing overtime, that's when the issues um, started becoming. Um, when we started looking at that data and other data from Cathy Parks is once overtime started to come into that, which plays into your world, extending the wake time, the time of day, that's when the risk really gets exacerbated. And more importantly, then it actually affects the next day, next day's sleep as well. Absolutely. So what, once overtime comes onto it. And, and not just the overtime as well, then extending those, those uh, sh- shift rotations out longer because once you're building up a chronic sleep debt then you know working an extra three days that that might be when you end up falling into the risk zones yeah and one of the one of the things we do to try to depict this to clients um in these high-risk industries is we use biomathematical modeling which you'll be familiar with which yes. takes into account some of these things now although it's not perfect it does help paint the picture relative to that industry or that company's roster about this relationship between sleep, wake, time of day, sleep inertia, and so on. So it can be useful to kind of start a conversation about the potential inherent or organizational risk that's with that, with that business. And it's quite frightening. Like we've done that with some oil and gas companies where they do 28 days on, 28 days off, or 28 days, 28, 28 nights on and 28, 28 nights off. And people think because it's even time, it's lower risk. But that 28 nights on, oh my God. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. is extremely high risk, you know. So, yeah, and I think um, the biomathematical models that we have, the various softwares that are out there on the market, I've been in, uh, investigating them all quite a bit recently, um, and going through and looking, um, <laughs> ringing up people and asking hard questions about exactly what's driving those models and things. And I think those models could be a lot better. Um, they don't really appreciate the interactions between sleep and wake. Um, as well as they should. And I think in some cases, some of them are a little bit mm, uh, positive. <laughs> I, think, I think the outcomes can be a lot worse. And I think we're just lucky that people don't make accidents all the time. Uh, I think people's performance is impaired a little bit more than those models predict um, under certain circumstances. And, and yeah, I think some of it should be tightened up a little bit more. Yeah, well, I can tell you without fail, Ray, that when we have modeled rosters for athletes, industry, whoever it is, and then we've gone out and collected actual data using valid actigraphy devices, and then we've actually pumped that real data from the person back into the model, the risk has always been at least 20 to 30% more than what was initially modeled based upon the design. And so yeah. my message back to leaders in the industry is this is best case scenario when we model things every single time it's always worse you know because when you go and you talk to groups they'll say well we get seven hours sleep and we're shift workers invariably like Vanessa's data here they'll come back with six and a half hours on day shift you know and what I've seen probably overdoing maybe 3,000 or more of individual assessments in sleep and mine and oil and gas and even throwing in athletes as well probably around 4,000 you're probably looking at most people are getting between six and a half to seven hours on day shift yeah uh, five, five to five and a half on after night shift and on their days off, seven and a half hours. That's roughly what we see. Yeah, and that, so. and that sounds about the figures that I expect to see. The thing with these models, right, is they'll take into account like some time of day influence, but they're not taking into account any, any chronic 
sleep debt. They're only, only ever predicting from the last maybe 24, 48, uh, or there might be some hangover from a little bit longer. So the chronic stuff is really missing. And the other stuff that's missing is that they just don't understand or the models don't take into account for the interactive effects. So as soon as you start expanding hours of wake, then the amount of sleep time you've had matters way more. Yeah. Um, so it needs to be really Com quite complicated, maybe three-way, even in some cases, four-way interactive terms in these models, which no one is at yet. But we're really talking maybe a, a very slight two-way interaction on some things. And then you're kind of just ignoring a lot of information, like, for example, chronic sleep debt, for example, or, or um, how the effects of time of day are changing after you've been awake for a long time, those sorts of things. So, I mean, there's a huge amount of work that we need to do. But the problem is, if you come out and say these models are not good, people don't want to use them. And then and that's a worse situation. Um, but also people want to defend their models because they spend a lot of time working on them. And you're like, yeah. okay, okay, your model's okay, but we, we can be doing a lot more. So yeah, it's I, a hard I, case. And I, and I think the thing is like you have to look at modeling in context of an overall strategy, we'll say for fatigue risk management or yeah, yeah. athlete management performance, whatever it may be, and look at it in the context of the other data. So what data are you collecting from the guys out there that are actually doing the work? You know, um, what does the local legislation regulation say? Have we assessed people for the prevalence of sleep disorders? Is that affecting that? Have we collect actual data from the guys being objective or subjective? Have we used validated questionnaires? Have we looked at productivity? Have we looked at performance? Have we looked at errors? Have we looked at accident rates? And you need to put all those things together and try and paint a picture. Now, the challenge I find in this area is, and this is for uh, a lot of listeners as well, whether it be athletes or shift workers, is it's not a, it's not a, a kind of a, a binary relationship where X equals Y or one affects the other. It's, it's a multivariable type of thing. And you know, every time you do these, this type of work, the answer may be different. And we often get accused in sleep science, I think, of like, oh, you said this, but now you're saying this. Yeah, because it's different, because it's in a different context. This is an underground mining operation. This is a submarine. This is a remote mining operation. This is aviation. It's a different context. And so you have to look at it in the context of what's happening. And also as well, I think um, from an industry point of view, it's very difficult, I think, for sleep scientists um, dealing with some of the harder sciences because um, coming back to your point about physics being like kind of hard and psychology or sleep being more on the soft side sometimes. One of the things that we find is that when we go out and we talk to people in businesses from an engineering perspective, they, they think about systems and they think about these inputs, they think about a process happening and think about outputs coming out. And it's this kind of linear relationship. And Absolutely. with sleep and performance, it's never that. For me, it's like, you know, throwing wet tea bags to the roof and seeing how many is going to stick. And that paints the picture. Um, Cause it can be, it can be that variable by times, you know? And the humans are way more varied than anything in, uh, in the physical sciences. Um, and really all that means is the problems that we're dealing with are complicated and there's lots of this. And, and so when we, we, we're looking at sort of a couple of those factors, the couple of probably the big factors, um, that's giving us outcomes. And obviously the more factors that we take into account in terms of, you know, the, the people's individual differences in age and, and, and all those sorts of health and all those sorts of things, then we get better outcomes. Um, the thing is, though, it also just shows how strong the effects are that we play with, that even with other variables and uh, in the mix, we still come out with quite large um, outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, so it, just, it does really, if anything, just signify how important sleep is. So, Ray, you've done all this work. You're back in Australia. You have no excuse. 
<laughs> where is your work leading to now? I know you're probably looking at some interventions, countermeasures. You're probably looking at building upon this work. What's the goal of your, of your work now or what are you trying to achieve? Yeah, so at the moment, I'm looking at um, countermeasures for sleep inertia. And I should probably, this is probably a good point to just um, touch on some of the work I did over in Sweden as well, because that, that's sort of directly leading to where I'm at at the moment. Um, because o over in Sweden, I was looking at um, medical doctors who were working in the intensive care units at the, the big European hospitals. And we're talking huge hospitals um, over there. They're, um, I was kind of staggered at how many beds um, these large hospitals are. And the doctors over there were working... Uh, from about three in the afternoon through to about eight or nine in the morning. So they were usually doing about 16 hour night shifts, which are pretty full on night shifts. So, you know, anything that I've seen in the military or uh, elite athletes or even special forces, uh, this guy, these guys are kind of up there. Um, they're kind of going, going, going. And then, you know, an accident will happen and they're back into surgery again. And they'll try and get some sleep to, to combat their fatigue during the shift when they can. And so that might be, uh, they might, might have a quiet night and they might be able to get down at midnight and have two or three hours, or they might be working right through and sort of maybe five o'clock in the morning, get half an hour kip and then keep going out to their changeover at nine o'clock. So some of these are pretty extreme circumstances. And initially going into there, I was mostly and then after tracking doctors overnight and following them around, I realized that the big issue for them was actually sleep inertia. So what that is, is the grogginess and the performance impairment that you feel immediately upon waking up. So for these guys, like uh, emergency services and military and other contexts, they're waking up and then they have to immediately perform. For some of this, it might be like um, answering a question on a phone to the nurse about a patient or changing a dose or something, or it might be literally getting up, walking over to the, into the surgery, scrubbing up and starting surgery. Um, so we tracked there. What I was actually doing was I, I had um, sleep monitors or um, little, oh, I don't want to get too technical, but monitors which measured brain activity um, on the doctors, little portable monitors. And so I could track their brain activity while they're doing their shift. And then if I went down for have a nap, I could see that they were sleeping. And so then I could also see um, their brain activity, what it was like when they were waking up. So I could see what state of sleep they're in, how alert they are. And then we were giving them tests as well yep. throughout this period so we could map their performance. And um, at different times, depending on how much sleep they had or what time they were waking up and what stage of sleep they are, sometimes we did catch them incredibly impaired. Um, so impaired, in fact, that they, they couldn't even do the tests that were giving them properly, um, let alone make logical decisions. Um, and so we spoke to them afterwards um, and we talked about these these periods. Now, these were pretty infrequent because a lot of the times the other thing we saw was their sleep was incredibly light. So it's kind of that effect where you, you, you know you need to wake up to an alarm for an early flight or something. You never really get a good quality sleep because you're just keeping light level sleep throughout the whole time. So that was one issue that they were seeing, which that just means that the recovery value of their sleep was far decreased than what it could have been. But it also just sort of meant that they weren't suffering from sleep inertia too much. But when we did catch them in sleep inertia, they were really impaired. It kind of have all these tricks to try and get around it. I think... A lot of experienced shift workers will do something like this. For example, if they're doing surgery, they just stick to the basics. They just would just run off muscle memory. They just run off the simple stuff. They would just do the things that they knew how to do. And then the problems were then if they were faced with a situation which they 
weren't prepared for, something completely out of the ordinary. Yeah. Um, and then they found it really hard to then think through the information that was presented to them to come to outcomes. And, and I mean, this is exactly the stuff we see in accident literature. So like, you know, when um, there's reports of uh, like a, a maritime uh, captain uh, joining the bridge after immediately being woken up and then within a few minutes, there's a collision with another ship. And we see the same thing in aviation. If uh, there's cases where pilots been woken up uh, during the cockpit um, and then um, within 10 minutes, the plane has crashed. So we, we've seen cases like this in the real world, in um, other industries, I should say. So we know it, it can be a bit of an issue. Um, and so coming back to Australia, on the back of that work, I've been looking into uh, a lot more countermeasures. How do we deal with these sorts of um, these issues when they arise. Um, so we've got, um, we're partnering up with um, the Naval Postgraduate School in America because they're interested in this sort of stuff. And through that partnership, we're also partnering up with NASA. So we're buddying up with a bunch of different people to look at different countermeasures and pull our data, which is really nice because big questions, you need big studies to, to yeah. investigate this stuff. So the sort of things we're looking at is um, like reactive countermeasures in the way of like caffeine use. We're actually putting everything out on the table. So we're even looking at things like smelling salts and um, um, and then also more uh, physiological mechanisms, which might not be useful immediately. But things like, you know, the, the cold bucket test where you, you know, put a hand or a foot into cold uh, ice bucket. And what that's doing is initiating a really strong physio physiological stress response. Um, so we're kind of looking at those ones. Obviously, other really useful ones are bright light upon waking. Um, um, yeah, anyway, there's a whole host of interesting things that we're looking at. And really what I want to see is with any of these, can we elicit physiological changes by which um, the brain wakes up quicker? And so then you can perform quicker. Yeah, so that's what we're playing with at the moment. Um, yeah, I'm quite interested. I reckon uh, if I was a betting man, I'd put my money on bright light and caffeine. I think we're going to see the strongest effects there. But really, the field hasn't even considered these other options as well. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. So much a player. Um, what's also interesting about this, Ram, and talking to you is that, and it's again, like when we talk to people in academia or out in business, is there's still a lot of stuff we don't know. You know, this is still a new subject. It's really only kind of taken off since the 60s in what we know about sleep science as a discipline. And, you know, in, and probably in the last, I don't know, 10 to 15 years, we really see a, a focus on performance or mitigation where before it's been about quantification of what's the issue with sleep restriction or, you know, loss of sleep, uh, loss of sleep, all this kind of reverse engineering where now it's more about, right, what can we do? What's the exactly. boundaries? How much sleep do we do we need minimally how can we um you know how can we kind of get ourselves out of these states of impairment due to sleep for maybe a short period of time and some of the work that you're working on i think it's really interesting you know there's this kind of idea out there that we have this nailed um and you know we get by on an x amount of sleep or you can train yourself to do these things because of people on social media and um that's half our battle i think is is fighting that bro science out there or bullshit bullshit science really oh, yeah. That's part of it. And then the other part is that it's trying to break into these new frontiers about, you know, how can we, how can we really mitigate these, um, 
negative effects of sleep if we can is it is it just something that it's kind of nearly it's nearly locked down you know and and the more i look at this the more i think wow there's a lot of stuff here that's just non-negotiable no matter what you do with it with medication caffeine sticking your hand in ice or sticking your hand in the sky or jumping up and down yeah exactly you know whatever and, you do you're still going to have the, the there's no biological free ride like you're, got, you're still going to pay the price sooner or later for it yeah i mean i think you're right there and, and i just want to touch on something you, you were mentioning just within that Part there. You were talking about sort of the, the stuff that's happening on social media and in the marketplace and that sort of stuff. It's it's amazing. When I started looking into some of the just background reading for this um, countermeasure type stuff, I came across the um, the smell alarm clock that's out there now, and people are using that. And and you're like, wow, this is something that's out there. People are using. Um, well, there's no scientific research on it at all. Um, and it's something that we'd like to play with a bit more odor um, on, on wakening. Um, and also the other thing we're playing with is um, like wearable technologies. For example, like a, like a sweat patch, like a small, um, like, a, like basically the size of a Band-Aid, that patch you put on your arm uh, to measure um, physiological changes in your body that are related to fatigue and metabolism and that sort of stuff. Um, I mean, and then you go out and you look at what wearable technologies are already out there and that people are using uh, that, that really don't have any scientific basis to them whatsoever. Difficult evolving so rapidly that we just can't get funding and run projects to keep up with what people are doing. Yeah, and there's this kind of idea as well, Red, that like, you know, oh, these technologies are out there, you know, um, X, Y, and Z device. Oh, well, if they're saying to do sleep, they must do sleep. Don't they have to go through some sort of validation process themselves? Don't they have to get approved? And the answer is no, because they're just, yeah. they're just trackers. They're not actually, um, you know, endorsed sleep devices that haven't been, you know, validated, that haven't been peer reviewed. There's numerous things. So when you start telling people this, their jaw drops and goes, but they have an ad and they say this and they say that. I'm like, yeah, but there, there's ways around that. And, and, you know, don't be, don't be fooled by this. But unfortunately, lots of people are fooled by it. And it's, and it's difficult for us to get this information out. And that's why we do this podcast. And that's why we put out blogs and we try and give out as much free information to people and try to put into a format that people can understand to try to counteract this. And it's not that we want to shut down companies. And it's not that we want to shut down people trying to do the right thing. We want to give people advice about, you know, what is, the, what is the best decision for them? And also as well, if you look at people, you know, I've had people come to me, oh, Ian, I've been getting up for like a month now, four o'clock in the morning, trying to exercise because I've been following some guy on YouTube or Twitter or whatever it is. And these things come around, you know, whoever it is. But I'm really tired and come 10 o'clock in the morning. I went, yeah, because you're truncating your sleep because you're not getting REM cycles, you're not getting enough REM cycles, you're truncating your sleep, you're exercising really hard. And yeah, but what can I do? stay in bed and maybe exercise at lunchtime or mid-morning or in the evening or look at these chronobiology principles like we've discussed earlier on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but, but I want to get up early in the morning. Okay, well then go to bed earlier, but I can't. Well, it's like something's got to give. You can't, yeah. you can't have it all, you know? So, yeah, and, and uh, it's amazing. Um, like you, you, so sleep research is something that, well, sleep itself has been something that humans have always been interested in. So you can go back to like ancient texts, you know, whether it's like in any ancient society, whether it's like ancient Egypt or, the, or um, even biblical texts and anything from like sort of prehistory, right? And you can track how people thought about sleep. And it's amazing when you see like scholars at the time that we're talking like, you know, a thousand years ago are saying things like, oh, look, we usually go to bed uh, just a few hours after the sun sets and wake up just after the sun rises. And so I just sort of did the numbers on that. I was like, oh, that's perfect. That's about an eight hours sleep in most places of the world. Um, 
and you go, okay, so we at some points knew that there was healthy ways to do this. And now we live in a society where we just push all of our instincts uh, out. And so now we have to just like tell people, okay, it's really important to, for example, even eat on a cycle, like eat three meals at the same times of the day, because then that's a, that's a set cycle that your body can adapt to. And the same thing with sleep, you know, like set up the routine, uh, make, go to, <laughs> basically all of this would be solved if we just slept when we were tired. <laughs> but we... Whoa, 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 rare, rare, rare. listen, 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 listen. <laughs> we can't be coming out where extreme, extreme statements like that. <laughs> I can't. You can't say rare if people are tired, just go to sleep. That, that just doesn't make no sense. Well, well, you, don't, we, you don't understand well, rare. Yeah, we, <laughs> we live in a world where that's no longer possible. We, we can't just simply fall asleep while driving a car or fall asleep at work or fall asleep while we're doing things. But, but biologically, that's probably what we should be doing. If we, if, if we just allowed our body, uh, if we listened to our body's needs, if we ate when we were hungry, if we slept when we were tired, um, that would sort of fix majority of our issues. But the problem is that we, we don't do that. Yeah, we try no. to ignore our physiological systems. And, and you know what? When you compare us to animals, we've got an incredible ability to do that. Um, things like, you know, you look at a, a, a rat or a, a mouse, you restrict their sleep and it doesn't take very long before they're dying. And um, you look at a human, you can keep them up for, a, you know, at least a night. <laughs> and physiologically, yeah, there's some consequences, but we're not close to death. And we can perform okay not incredibly well there's impairments but we can still do things um and so we have this amazing ability as humans to push out all of our needs in order to do stuff and i think at different types in, in times in history that's been really important and kept us alive when other things haven't been alive um but at the same time there are consequences to doing that and we just need to realize that we need to appreciate what those consequences are and then make informed decisions about whether i want to do that or not yeah so Raymond, just wrapping up, coming to the end of our conversation today, what would be some of the key takeaways you might give to our listeners today um, that you found your research that could apply to people? I think the key things is um, track in times, like if you're doing shift work, track predictable times when you will be tired and plan around that. So if that means if if there are going to be times when you're going to lose sleep because you know you might not be able to sleep during the day or whatever for a shift, Appreciate that that's important and then track outcomes. So, for example, you know, plan to get a taxi or plan to sleep at work or plan to get someone to pick you up. Plan to do things. Plan to be impaired when you're fatigued so that you don't find yourself in a situation that you can't get around working that. That's the big thing. Um, and then uh, don't be an idiot with devices. <laughs> you know, like um, if you want to use a device, go for it, but look into it and, and work out exactly what it's telling you and then what you can do with that. Um, because I think people, people are not stupid, they're smart, and it doesn't take a lot of work to then look at various devices and technology and stuff and work out how to use them sensibly in their lives. Great stuff. Listen, Ray, thanks very much for coming on the podcast today. If people want to get in contact with you, um, what's the best way, if they want to ask you any further questions, do you have a social media presence? Um, what's the best way people can get in contact with you and troll you as well as I do? <laughs> I think my email is probably the easiest. 
that, that's probably my main main communication method. If you want to contact me, it's nice and reliable. And that's uh, raymond.matthews at unisa.edu.au. That's Matthews with two Ts. Yeah, I'm always interested for people to drop me a line and troll me. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> you get plenty of trolls on uh, that listen to this. Um, I, oh, won't mention, I won't mention anybody's name until next week. But, <laughs> trolls um, are good fun. Trolls are really good fun. <laughs> <laughs> because they've got an interesting perspective. They've got a point to make. And so they end up having just nice debates with people about their experiences and things. And I oh, know it's always nice to hear about people talking about sleep. Yeah, I think debates and trolls are two different things. We will put uh, <laughs> we, 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 we will put Raymond's information into the show notes. Uh, we'll put a bit of a bio on there. We'll put Ray's um, email address in there. And if Ray sends us through some nice graphs, we'll stick them in as well yeah, for the show yeah, notes. And um, if we find any other interesting links, because Ray's got some uh, good stuff out there on the interwebs, we'll put some hyperlinks in there for people to listen to. Ray, thank you very much. Um, all the best with the new role back in South Australia. And um, yeah, I'm sure we'll have you back on the podcast to hear about some of your research in the future. Yeah, I look forward to it. It's always nice uh, bantering with you, Ian. <laughs> all right. I love you too. Bye. Right, bye-bye. <laughs> it was a great conversation there with Raymond Matthews from the University of South Australia. Thanks again to Raymond for coming on the podcast. He's a busy guy. I uh, really appreciate him taking the time out. We could have spent hours there talking about a number of those different areas. Um, I'm sure we'll have Ray back on the podcast again. Uh, as I discussed in the intro, if you have a chance to go on to iTunes and leave us a review and a rating, be much appreciated. If you could share this podcast episode and any of our sleep for performance information uh, via your social networks, we really appreciate that as well. We're just looking to push out this information to as many people as possible and make them aware that it is available and it is free. Okay, so that is this episode for June. Hope you enjoyed it. Until next month, sleep well.